From CPR News, it's Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill in Centennial. And I'm Ryan Warner in Washington this week. The first Democratic presidential debates are at the end of the month, and Colorado Senator Michael Bennett jokes that the stage will be so full, people shouldn't blink or they'll miss their favorite candidate. Bennett has a new book about dysfunction here in D.C. The confirmation of judges is now an entirely partisan process. I see nominees that would never have vetted in the old way of doing this who are getting lifetime appointments on the court. How this relates to his biggest regret in the Senate. Then refugees pair with University of Denver students. They're learning about other cultures, how to interact with other people, how to be respectful, how to recognize talents and strengths in so many different forms, not just the American form. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill, and we're going to start in Washington, D.C., where my colleague Ryan Warner is. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Avery. You just caught up with a presidential hopeful. That's right. We're less than two weeks now from the first Democratic presidential debates, and I just sat down with Colorado senior Senator Michael Bennett, Bennett, of course, was a late entry into the Democratic primary. And like people who want to be president often do, Bennett has written a book. He has. And self-effacingly, the senator says it's not a memoir. Quoting him, I couldn't bear to read such a thing, much less expect you to. Uh, But Bennett does introduce himself to the American people. He lays out the series of really serendipitous events that landed him in one of the most powerful legislative bodies in the world. And then he borrows a page from John F. Kennedy. How so? Well, one of the most famous pre-presidential books came out in 1957 from then Senator Kennedy. Uh, Profiles in Courage, it was called, and it was a celebration of integrity in the U.S. Senate, each chapter a different example. You could call Senator Bennett's new book, though, Profiles in a Lack of Courage. (laughs) Why is that? Well, the Colorado senator highlights instances of brokenness in our democracy, rather than courage. Uh, In his words, five moments of uncompromising factionalism. Senator, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. And before I ask you about these five moments, I'd like to start with a bigger number, 20. That's the number of Democrats who will be on a debate stage later this month, 10 one night, 10 the next. How do you stand out without grandstanding in some unappealing way. I I tell people that you better not blink because if you do, you're going to miss your favorite candidate, whoever (laughs) that is, because we all have only five minutes or so. And I think what I'd like to do is stand out as somebody who's telling the truth to the American people. That's what I hope to accomplish on the debate stage. Amongst the nine liars? Or what do you mean by that? I just, I think we need to level with the American people about the 40 years of a lack of economic mobility that we've had in this country that's tearing at our democracy that I think has resulted in the election of Donald Trump and the destruction that's happening with our institutions, our governing institutions in Washington. You know, The Freedom Caucus and Mitch McConnell have immobilized our government. And it's not just that we've been unresponsive to the needs of the American people. We're doing nothing to try to address the challenges that they face. And I think that's what we should be focused on during the debate. You talk about economic mobility, which I suppose uh, in some ways is another way of saying the American dream. In 40 years, of course, Democrats have had some control of government and uh, apparently haven't fixed the problem you're talking about. Well, for most of that time, we've had uh, mixed party rule, which is important to keep in mind because for people who think that we're going to solve our problems with one party rule, 
I think they need to account for the fact that a lot of time we have divided government. And But I think it's also true that over that period of time, neither party has been adequately focused on the issues that we face. Some people say, look, this is just the inevitable result of a global market for labor, the rise of China, the role of technology in our society. And I think the Coloradans are not prepared to give up on the American dream for their kids. And I think they, they want to see Washington actually focused on their challenges rather than on the idiotic uh, and pointless battles that we're having today. Do you think in the face of climate change, which in some ways necessitates a different kind of consumption, that the American dream needs to be right-sized, downsized? I don't think it needs to be changed in a way that in any sense diminishes the American dream. I mean, we're not living the same way we lived in the colonial era era anymore. <laughs> I mean, Colorado, nobody even knew it was there when this country was founded. So we change over generations and we need to change again to save this planet. And I am convinced that if we do act on climate and if we act resolutely and create a durable solution, that it actually will drive economic benefits for the society broadly. And um, and if we don't act, the reverse is true. Our, the, the effect on our economy will be catastrophic. Well, now to these examples of uncompromising factionalism. Uh, in this book, you include the rise of the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus, which you write have no intention of compromise. Uh, you include the lack of Republican engagement in crafting and then sticking to the Iran nuclear agreement. Uh, but you start with the erosion of bipartisanship in how the Senate confirms judicial nominees, all the way up to the Supreme Court, of course. Uh, this is something commonly referred to as the nuclear option. The rules of the Senate can be positively Byzantine, but uh, <laughs> wh why was this the place to begin? The, the strongest example, perhaps, of uncompromising factionalism. I think it, it shows that this episode shows the weakness of our political leadership in Washington. To me, it does. When I was in law school, which was not that long ago, if you were a qualified nominee for a court, even the Supreme Court, you would commonly get 90 votes or more in your, your confirmation hearing. And that's because we believed as a country that using the confirmation process as a way of reasserting the independence of the judiciary, the judicial branch, and treating it not just as another partisan political branch of government, that that was a positive thing. Because of what's happened in Washington just in the period of time that I've been there, it started before I got there, but in the period of time that I've been there, it accelerated. The confirmation of judges is now an entirely partisan process. And now I see nominees that would never have vetted in the old way of doing this who are getting lifetime appointments on the court. And is, Are you sour about it because yours isn't the party in charge? In other words, would this be a lovely schema if if you had your way and your nominees? I think that it is it is very hard to argue that the American people, on whose behalf we are ostensibly working in Washington, I mean that's a that's <laughs> there's a question whether we are. It's very hard for me to see how the American people are better off having this turned into a partisan exercise, no matter who's in charge, than have it be 
an, an exercise that reassures people that we're actually trying to insulate the courts from our political system. There's, there are people who say, look, the courts have always been political. Mm-hmm. It's naive to think that that's not been true. I can tell you it is far worse today than it was when I arrived. Can this cat get back in the bag? That's a great question. I, I think the likely answer to that is no. The only way that I could imagine that the cat could get back in the bag would be if both parties could agree that they would plunder an equal number of judges at every level of the court, from the district court to the Supreme Court, and that at a moment when we had reached parity, that we stopped and said, okay, we're going to go back the other way. In this chapter, you reveal the vote that you most regret casting which helped open the door for using the nuclear option with the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, The vote was for a rules change that allowed lower court nominees to be approved with a simple majority. Uh, This was at a time when Republicans were blockading President Obama's nominees to the D.C. Circuit, uh, which is a sort of springboard to the Supreme Court often. Talk about your regret around the vote you cast. Well, I thought it – I actually – felt that it was the wrong thing to do at the time. We had had Wait, why did you make the decision? We we had had occasions before that where we had almost invoked the nuclear option and every time we'd walked it back. In fact, Ken Salazar, my predecessor, had been part of a gang of 14 that had managed to walk it back. But by this time the fatigue had set in the Republicans had filibustered their own colleague, their former Republican senator who President Obama had nominated to be the Secretary of Defense. No Secretary of Defense had ever been filibustered before. This is Chuck Hagel. Yeah, nobody could get through and it was enormously frustrating. And in the end, I think I think Harry Reid also felt that there was a special kind of nullification going on here of President Obama by the Republicans, and he wasn't going to stand for it. And so I voted with the Democrats on it. I thought that we were setting a precedent that Mitch McConnell would use the way he's used it. I think McConnell has been far more strategic than the Democrats have been on this whole issue, also much more malevolent, much more cynical. You write that one-party rule is in opposition to pluralism, the idea that we draw strength from difference and wisdom from honest debate. Are you saying in an ideal world, Democrats would not sweep Washington in 2020 as they did Colorado state government last year? No, I think that it would be great. I'm a Democrat. I'd love it if Democrats swept government. But most of the time, we have shared party rule. Most of the time, there are Republicans that have one branch of government and Democrats that have another branch of government. And we have to find a way to work together under those circumstances. You know, I write in the book that the founders of this country believed that one of the great virtues of living in a republic or a democratic republic was not that we would all agree with each other all the time. The point was we were free and we would disagree. And they believed out of those disagreements, we would fashion much more durable and much more imaginative results than any king or tyrant could come up with. So is is money the difference Money in politics, which you point to in that passage? I think money is a huge part of it. The the effect of Citizens United can't be overstated here. The breakdown of traditional media, uh, the breakdown of print media. We are at the mercy now of the partisan cable channels at night and the interaction with politics on social media. So 
when you add up who watches that stuff and who listens to that stuff, you get to about 12 million people. And they're really well represented in Washington. But there are 320 million other people that spend their day every day just trying to build their business or provide for their family or hope for the best for their country who have no representation here. And that's what we have to find a way to change. And I think it requires, it's difficult, it's going to require all of us to have a more elevated sense of what it means to be a citizen in this country. And it's going to require a far different expectation for our elected leaders in America. You dedicate a few pages to introducing yourself to the American people, uh, Senator Bennett. And it seems that your career has been a series of, I'm not sure what the word is, happy accidents, lucky breaks. You studied law and you write, I would become the world's worst lawyer. Uh, But after moving to Denver, you sent letters to powerful people. I think I said I'd become the worst lawyer if I stayed in the If you had stayed. Yeah. Uh, Once coming to Denver, you send letters to powerful people fellow Wesleyan alumnus John Hickenlooper, who was running a brew pub, Phil Anschutz, the energy railroad telecom tycoon. Anschutz eventually gave you a job that you weren't on paper qualified for, so you go to night school to gain the necessary skills. You do well by him. Uh, You later help Hick run for Denver mayor, become his chief of staff when he wins, Uh, and later the DPS school board appoints you superintendent. The coup de grace, perhaps, is that when Ken Salazar becomes Secretary of Interior, there's a vacant U.S. Senate seat to which then-Governor Bill Ritter appoints you. Have you thought about whether privilege plays into your rise? Well, I, I write about that in the in the introduction. I, I think very clearly I have benefited from every single um, lucky break that our society can provide people that are situated as fortunately as I was situated. You know, I write about my mom and her parents who were Polish Jews, who were they and an aunt, the only members of their family to survive the Holocaust. Uh, And then they spent two years living in Warsaw after the war was over and then went to Stockholm, Sweden, and then Mexico City and came to New York and rebuilt the small business that they had lost in Poland. And they were the ones that paid for my education and for my brother's education, my sister's education. So, yeah, I've had every privilege that anybody in this country could ever want. And what that makes me believe strongly is that children born into into families that are poor shouldn't be denied those privileges as well. And they are every single day in America when you have a school system that's reinforcing the income inequality that we have rather than liberating people from it. As I was reading your book, Senator Bennett, I tweeted an excerpt about your appointment to the Senate. You write, to this day, I really don't know why Ritter, that's Governor Bill Ritter, why Ritter made such an appointment. It did absolutely nothing to help him politically. I was relatively unknown in this state. No one, including myself, knew whether I had the skills required to win a statewide race, which I would have to launch immediately after the appointment. And several of my followers on Twitter just don't buy that you're really perplexed by your appointment. Is this false modesty? No, that's everything I wrote there is true. What did your readers say? Uh, Just that you're a smart guy who would have probed to find out why he appointed you. You know, I the, what I say in the book is that I I think that he saw a meeting that I had held as a school superintendent 
um, where people were just coming unglued because we were changing the graduation requirements in Denver. It was at South High School. And in those days, as on many nights, I spent hour after hour after hour taking incoming and being able to continue to have a productive and positive conversation, even as people became or were enraged. And it is true that that has prepared me well to be in the Senate. You thought this is nothing compared to a school closing, a ticked off parent. Yeah, yeah, this is nothing compared to a school closing meeting. So I rang former Governor Bill Ritter up asking why he chose you over people with longer political careers, like former Speaker of the State House Andrew Romanoff, who's now running for Senate. You and Ritter first interacted when he was Denver District Attorney, and you were the mayor's chief of staff, and you advised him a little bit on education when he ran for governor. And uh, he says he appreciated your intellect and your humility. You know, he's one of the first people I've known, went to Yale Law School and didn't tell you that in the first 20 minutes he met you. <laughs> and, and so I really, really liked Michael. Ritter thought it was remarkable, too, that you were a finalist for education secretary under President Obama. But it may have been your underdog status, Michael Bennett, that Ritter says really clinched the deal. One of the things people should remember about my own entree into political life is that I was appointed by Governor Roy Romer to be the Denver district attorney in 1993. And in most of the stories leading up to that appointment, I was in the paragraph also on the boat, period. And I was very much a dark horse candidate, but it worked out in my mind that, you know, the governor took a chance. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of a moment when I was in Lodo uh, one morning and Bill Ritter had decided to run for governor. And everybody thought there's no way Bill Ritter could be elected governor. He was the DA in Denver at the time. There he was getting out of his truck on the street in Lodo. I was in a car down the block. I knew him a little bit through the work we had done together in the city. And I thought, it's really incredible that that guy thinks he can get elected governor. Nobody, <laughs> he, and he must know something that nobody else knows. And I think that happens to be true about politics. You know, you just don't know. Barack Obama was 30 points behind Hillary Clinton in the November before the Iowa caucus. Bill Clinton was at about 1.3% in the polls at this moment in his cycle. Is this what you tell yourself when you look at your own polling? Yeah, it is. Analysis by CNN's Harry Enten raises the question of whether you qualified for the Democratic debates on a fluke. Uh, it seems people who knew you didn't pick you in a poll, but people who had no idea who you were chose you. What's your take? Have you seen this analysis? I saw it. We've, we've qualified in four polls, and I think it's going to be a fluke when what you're talking about is 1%, which is what we're talking about, in order to qualify. That's within the margin of error in every single one of these polls, which I think raises the question whether this is the way we should put people on the debate stage. But You can it qualify is what, either through polls or through number of supporters. Well, and the number of supporters has turned into this insane you know, money laundering scheme to get people on the, on the ballot. I mean, people are having to spend a fortune in order to get these dollar contributions. And I think it also creates a set of incentives for people to say, watch me light myself on fire, send me a dollar, you know, which one might ask whether that's the best way for people to run for president or, or not. You recently said that nobody knows what the National Democratic Party stands for. 
How does adding your voice among the throng of Democratic presidential candidates help focus that? Well, I think we're going to have a competition of ideas here. And my view of this is that in order to overcome Mitch McConnell and the Freedom Caucus, you know, I say in the book that I think Trump is much more a symptom of our problems than the essential cause of our problems. He has made matters much, much worse. And he's made matters intolerable for the families, you know, in the Denver public schools that I used to work for, which I particularly resent. But before he got here, we were mobilized by McConnell and by the Freedom Caucus. And their ideology, which is very far outside the mainstream of conventional American political thought, including conventional and traditional Republican thought. Now the National Party is the party of of Donald Trump. And in order to overcome that, I think we need to unify the American people. It, It needs to be Democrats coming together, but we also need independents and some Republicans to close over this. And this, by the way, is not the project of just one election. This is the project of the rest of my life, I think. Election after election after election after election. To establish a set of policies that drives broad economic growth in this country, lifts incomes for everybody in America again, educates our children, builds a durable solution to climate change that can't be torn out every two years, depending on what happens in the congressional elections, creates universal health care in America. We're the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't have that. That's what an agenda would look like if we were succeeding as a country. And if we were paying attention to what we were doing for the next generation, and if we were thinking about America's place in the world, that's what it would look like. This is what's at stake. It is now harder for the first time in American history More than 50% of of young people today will earn less than their parents for the first time in American history. How have we let this happen to this country? Senator, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. U.S. Senator and Democratic presidential candidate Michael Bennett, he spoke Thursday in Washington, D.C. with my colleague Ryan Warner. Bennett's new book is called The Land of Flickering Lights, Restoring America in an Age of Broken Politics. Bennett is back in Denver tonight to do a reading at the Tattered Cover on Colfax Avenue. This is CPR News. Earlier this month, we answered a Colorado Wonders question about whether or not it's safe to eat fish in the South Platte River that runs through Denver. Since then, you've asked us more questions about fishing and recreation in the Platte. CPR's Haley Sanchez brought us that story, and she joins us to answer a few more questions. Hi, Haley. Hey, Avery. Remind us what you found in your initial Colorado Wonders story. I talked with water quality officials, some scientists and researchers, and even a couple fishermen who spent a lot of time at the Platte to see if it was safe to eat these fish. And what I found was 
was that water quality experts are only monitoring the water quality. They're not really studying the fish. So an environmental toxicologist with Colorado's Department of Public Health and Environment recommended following EPA guidelines for fish consumption. And Denver's Department of Public Health and Environment warns there's pollutants in this river that can build up in the fish that people probably don't want to be eating. On the other hand, um, scientists and researchers said to be cautious and not to eat the fish regularly, especially if you're pregnant or a child. The fishermen told me they see junk like diapers, hypodermic needles, murky water from storm runoff. They said they would only eat these fish if they were desperate. Another reason they do catch and release only is because they want other fishermen and anglers to experience the great fishing that there is on the plat. After hearing your story, Fred Miller of Denver wrote us and said there are reports of arsenic entering the urban South Platte from Bear Creek. So what do those reports tell us? Officials are regularly collecting samples from and monitoring the plat. They say the most common threat to public health is E. coli, but they're also looking for things like phosphorus and nitrogen and other metals, including arsenic. If they find something harmful to human health, they would warn the public. But they have this interactive map online that tells you where it's safe to recreate and what they found in different parts of the river. Miller's right. There is arsenic in the Platte River near Hamden Avenue and Bear Creek. The map also says this water isn't safe for recreation or drinking. So where does the arsenic come from? Arsenic occurs naturally in the bedrock, but it can also be caused by urban development and mining. It can even get stirred up by construction. Developers have to get permits so the state can monitor and correct it if the levels get too high. Miller also said bacteria like E. coli can be killed with proper cooking of fish. Heavy metals cannot be removed by cleaning or cooking. Is that true? So for this question, I talked with Alan Vita from the University of Colorado, Denver. He studies the impact chemicals have on fish. He said, yes, bacteria might be killed from cooking your fish, but there's still a risk to human health. A lot of anglers are being exposed to bacteria, not just by eating it, but anytime they're touching the water, the sediments in the river, the fish, uh, they might be potentially exposed to E. coli and other pathogens. Cooking methods differ in how they affect contaminants in the fish tissue, but there's no way of preparing a fish that gets rid of all contaminants or possible pathogens. Another listener wanted to know if they put live fish in a bathtub of water for a few days, would that cleanse them and then make them safe to eat? Vita said that some fish might find the tap water from your bathtub a bit stressful because it likely has chlorine and other chemicals in it that's different from their environment. I want to see that. I hear that uh, generations ago, my family would do the same thing around holidays. Uh, But sadly, no. Many of the contaminants, such as mercury and perfluorinated chemicals, are rather tightly bound either to membranes of cells or to muscle tissue. And it's not a matter of simply allowing the, the gut to pass, which is all you would really see after a few days. Uh, That's not nearly long enough to decontaminate. The next question comes from somebody who has moved here from California. I'm Vanny Pham. I live in East Denver, and I'm originally from Southern California. I lived here for three years now. I wanted to know where I could find crawdads for consumption. It's sort of popular in Southern California to to find these restaurants with the Cajun. She said her favorite way to eat crawdads is using a Vietnamese Cajun recipe she found online. I like it because it's spicy and garlicky and buttery and you can like dip bread in it. You can have it with rice. It's delicious. I asked Dan Lundahl, one of the fishermen, this question because he spends a lot of time on the plat. Here's what he said about crawdads. Oh, anywhere along the plat, but mainly where the water starts to slow down. 
and there's good rock structure or logs. They like to hide. But we find them um, a lot of time in the rocks, and we see some big ones. And I've seen them up to five inches long before, which is a big crawdad. Scott Long, another frequent angler of the Platte, says he hopes people don't eat them because they're actually food for the fish. Our next question is about recreation. Is it safe to float, tube, or raft in the South Platte through Denver? I've heard it's not a good idea, but it seems so fun. So people are allowed to wade, boat, and play in the water, but it's not recommended by Denver Public Health and Environment. Again, keep in mind the South Platte gets runoff and pollution from streets and discharge from wastewater treatment facilities. If you do decide to play in the Platte, it's recommended that people avoid standing water, wash your hands after touching the water, and wait 72 hours after a storm before you get into the river. Thanks, Haley. Thank you. Haley Sanchez is a Max Wysick News Fellow. She reported on whether fish in the Platte River are safe to eat, answering questions through Colorado Wonders. So what do you wonder about when it comes to Colorado? Send us your questions at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Famed chef Charles Phan is a refugee from Vietnam. He's built his career on food from his homeland. Phan owns the Slated Door in San Francisco, recently voted one of the nation's 100 best restaurants by Open Table. He flew to Colorado recently to make dinner, but CPR's Andrea Dukakis found it was much more than a typical night in the kitchen. As much as Chef Fon was interested in food while he was in town, his real focus was helping refugees and immigrants train for jobs. I need this stuff out now. On the menu, grapefruit and jicama salad, steamed chicken with lily bud, and creme brulee. This dinner at the University of Denver's Hospitality School is a training ground for newly arrived immigrants and refugees. You know, in the past, I don't talk about being a refugee just because I, you know, I don't want to have a chip on my shoulder. But with today's climate and how we as a country treat other refugees, I feel like I need to speak up because I was afforded that opportunity 44 years ago. Fon says he flew the thousand plus miles to Denver because he wants to give refugees like himself a leg up in what can be a scary new place. And he says, especially in a good economy, he and other chefs need them. We opened a restaurant in the East Bay in January, and uh, it's been four months. We're packed every night, but we haven't been able to open for lunch because we don't have enough staffing. I never heard of that. You couldn't open something because you don't have enough people to work. In the past, you always like, oh, you couldn't open because nobody come. For refugees working tonight's dinner, this is the culmination of a month-long free class at DU in which they learn to work in hospitality. They're from places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Burma, and Bhutan. The twist is, these immigrants work under DU upperclassmen. The idea was the brainchild of Sherry Young, who teaches a class called Managing Human Capital. How do you learn how to manage another human being from a textbook? Ideally, I would give each of my students their own company with employees, but I can't do that. Instead, the immigrants who apply for the program play the role of employees. My students write job descriptions. They hire for those positions. They then train for those positions and then do performance appraisals. Once students and immigrants are paired, the undergrads spend several weeks working with the trainees as they prepare for the big dinner. My students taught the students how to run the dish machine, how to prep the food, how to pour wine with the label facing the guest, twist the bottle, 
bottle so it doesn't drip, how to pour a perfect four-ounce pour. Young says the newcomers learn in a relatively relaxed environment, and her undergrads learn leadership skills. That leadership's not about bossing somebody around. That leadership's about finding the strengths and the talents and the people around you and helping your staff achieve their hopes and dreams as well. But Young says it also broadens her DU students' perspectives. They're learning about other cultures, how to interact with other people, how to be respectful, how to recognize talents and strengths in so many different forms, not just the American form. So Young says you might have a 55-year-old single father of five from Sudan working with a 21-year-old kid from Minnesota, or say 33-year-old Zaravitz Camacho of Venezuela, who was hired by junior Julian Constantino. I love the experience of like giving people good memories and times to be around each other. We're in DU's huge industrial kitchen. Tonight, Constantino and Camacho will be on dish duty. Camacho says Constantino's taught her a lot, like one key to success in hospitality. Always make a smile. <laughs> that is very important. We have to always be happy. <laughs> but the secret to this partnership is that it's reciprocal. Many of the refugees and immigrants have a wealth of experience from working in their home countries, often much more than their DU mentors. When we were interviewing her for the position, at the very end, she's like, wow, you guys did a really good job. And we were like, wait, what? And she's like, yeah, I was an interviewer back in my country. For newcomers like Camacho, their month-long stint at DU is a stepping stone to other jobs, possibly in other fields. Chef Charles Fong, who arrived in the U.S. on a boat from Vietnam in 1975, says it's one small way to help immigrants learn the nuances of work in America. I think it's our core value of being American to help other people. In fact, I think that this country will get a lot more out of having different folks moving here. And it makes me think more about my experience 44 years ago. I'm Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. Governor Jared Polis has laid out his plan to improve the vaccination rate of kindergartners in Colorado. The policies come in an executive order he signed Thursday, but they don't address the most controversial parts of the vaccine debate. CPR's public affairs reporter Benta Berkland explains the highlights of the executive order. It builds on existing state efforts and it directs the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment to work with communities to determine the root causes behind low rates in some areas and to better understand parents' motivations. So it encourages the use of standardized exemption forms. It would more widely distribute vaccine data. And there's also a component to look at access to vaccines. Right now, Colorado has the lowest kindergarten vaccination rate in the country for measles, mumps, and rubella. Bella, and new data just released says that rate has dropped even further. But Polis says he feels his order also honors parents' rights. It's about not forcing other people to live the lives that you would have for your own kids and grandkids. It's about respecting people's values, respecting where people are coming from, and working within that context to improve the public health. He said he really sees this as kind of a middle course between people who are more skeptical of vaccines and don't want the government to intervene here, and the public health community that really wants to see some concrete action on this issue. 
The order does not change the current exemption process for parents who want to enroll unvaccinated children in school. So what do both sides of the debate think? A lot of folks in the public health community were there at the signing ceremony. They're supportive. Sean O'Leary is a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Children's Hospital, and it was signed at Children's Health. He says he's so glad the governor is shining a light on the problem, and he called the executive order fantastic and thinks it'll help improve vaccination rates. But there is a caveat. Vaccines are really kind of unique in medical procedures in that it's not just a choice about your own children. Your choices also affect your community. And so the way he's framed it as a, as a parent's rights to choose issue, I think, is problematic. I talked to Phil Silberman. He's one of the founders of the Colorado Health Choice Alliance, and that group opposes mandatory government vaccine requirements. He says he appreciates Polis showing respect and understanding for consumer choice. And Silberman says he's glad Polis isn't trying to push for changes to the personal exemption or religious belief exemption. He told me earlier that Polis was kind of a breath of fresh air because Silberman feels like nationwide Democrats are largely pushing for what he feels are draconian measures when it comes to vaccines. CPR public affairs reporter Benta Berkland on the governor's executive order to improve childhood vaccination rates in Colorado. Cannabis is one of the state's most infamous exports. Of course, it's against the law to take it out of the state. But that doesn't stop criminals from trying to make some fast cash on the black market. CPR business reporter Ben Marcus breaks it down. George Brockler has been a prosecutor for decades, so you'd think it'd be hard to surprise him. But... I've never seen the black market for marijuana as robust and as expertly cultivated, forgive that pun, as I have right now. Brockler says it's a byproduct of legalization. Colorado has lenient cannabis sentencing laws and allows small personal grows. That makes this a great place to hide a black market grow. And so he's been busy. Today, Colorado announced a massive marijuana bust, years in the making. El Paso County Sheriff's Office busting another illegal marijuana grow operation this morning. This one east of Colorado Springs. along. They're busting down doors and seizing marijuana plants. It's a scene that's played out at dozens of locations across the metro area today. The DEA... These black market grows are often found in suburban homes in nice neighborhoods. Brockler recalls one bust in a 55 and older community a few months ago. Ultimately, they pulled out, I think it was 1,000 to 1,100 plants out of one home. So you, you got to wonder, how do you walk around in there without feeling like you're in that movie Children of the Corn or something? And late last month, the biggest bust of them all, 80,000 plants, two tons of finished cannabis product, all of it destined for out of state for the simple economics of it. Because you take $1,000 worth a pound of, I guess, of marijuana uh, out here, and it's about four to 5,000 bucks out in Florida. Where there are no recreational stores. That's still the case for the vast majority of the U.S. John Bolduck is superintendent of the Nebraska State Patrol. He says they continue to seize a lot of marijuana on its way to places like New York and Florida from legal states. Certainly Colorado is one of them. We see a lot of marijuana from Oregon. We see a lot from California. We're seeing some from Nevada. Bolduck says they often seize narcotics and guns along with the marijuana. Uh, the folks who are... Uh, engaged in the black market uh, in marijuana and other illicit drugs are not exactly your upstanding citizens. And that's a world away from Colorado's regulated marijuana market. Here, consumers can shop in licensed cannabis stores, which are convenient and cheap. Law enforcement say that regulated growers don't play a big role in the black market. 
Well, because the regulated growers have way too much to lose. That's Dean Heiser, chief counsel for LiveWell, a large chain of dispensaries in Colorado. He's standing in one of his stores in an industrial section of northeast Denver. A fantastic array of products, from vape pens to edibles, are displayed. Our plan is to, and goal is to make sure that a consumer can go one place and get what they want. He says so much money has been invested in these places and the grows that feed them that any association with the black market would be foolish. And to be honest with you, um, the little bit of money that you might be able to make diverting product compared to the risk that you would take and the jail time that you might serve and frankly the headlines that you might make, (laughs) it's just not worth it. Which is why he doesn't think looping is widespread. That's when customers buy lots of cheap marijuana directly from stores, then drive it across state lines. Heiser says Livewell's bud tenders watch out for it. Most of our folks are trained on the fact that if you've seen this person twice, start asking questions. But more than 100,000 cannabis plants have been seized from black market grows in the last few years. And District Attorney George Brockler, a Republican, says the only thing that will quell demand for Colorado marijuana is more states legalizing it and meeting that demand themselves. I don't wish that on them. That's a decision for them and their voters. But um, just economics tell you that that's true. He says as long as marijuana fetches exponentially more money out of state, Colorado's black market may never be stopped. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Now for something grungy. The Boulder-based theater group Band of Tufts is putting on Nirvamlet as a part of Denver's Next Stage Now series, and the show is exactly what it sounds like, a mashup of Shakespeare's Hamlet and Nirvana. Yep, that Nirvana. Colorado Matters producer Alexandra McMahon is a huge 90s grunge fan, so of course she had to check it out. On the fourth level of the parking garage at the Denver Performing Arts Complex, the cast and crew of Nervamlet warms up. Three, two, one. Welcome to the show, rockers, roadies, and groupies. Please keep your bodies active, tongue stretched out of your mouth, and devil horns to the sky. It has, it's sort of a mixture of concert meets the story of Hamlet um, in a kind of crazy way. So yes, there'll be a ton of music, but also you'll really be able to follow the story. That's one of the show's directors and co-founder of Band of Tufts, Colleen Mylott. In their version, Hamlet is the son of Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love. And the story explores the theory that Cobain's death was not suicide, but perhaps murder which has a lot to do with how the Love character is constructed. A lot of people believe that Courtney Love had something to do with Kurt's death. And for us, that had a really great intersection point with the story of Hamlet, with the Claudius character. So we actually call her Cordius. She's like a mixture of Courtney Love and a bit Claudius, and actually a little bit Gertrude, too. We keep calling it a blended rock tale, and that feels like the most fitting description. (laughs) While the band did some sound checking for their tech rehearsal that night, Mylot explained how Nervamlet was born at a theater company retreat after a few glasses of wine. We had been toying around picking up Hamlet because we often like to mash up Shakespeare just because it's such a known quantity. And she was like, well, why don't we just do Nervamlet? Um, and we all laughed and just sort of thought, oh, funny joke. And then we started listening to 90s grunge music. And then we started to realize how many things 
were cross sections between the two source materials. And we like, were like what? You know, for us, like the music feels so angsty, melancholy, just like you think of Hamlet always being kind of a you know, slightly melancholy, whiny, angsty teen. So the 90s feel and the bombast of that emotion felt right. Um, So, and the music's just so fun and delicious. And then really, once I started to realize that a lot of people believe that Kurt Cobain had been murdered versus that it was suicide, I was like, oh, that's a way in. There's a lot that we can do theatrically to really mess with both worlds. This isn't the first time Band of Tufts has mixed rock and roll with theater. Past shows have included I Miss My MTV that celebrates the golden era of the music channel in the 80s. And despite its name, Nervamlet isn't all Nirvana. The company has peppered in tracks from Jeff Buckley, Mazzy Starr, Ozzy Osbourne, and Hole, Courtney Love's former band. But Nirvana fans, rest assured, there's plenty of this in the show. Nervamlet is an interactive theater experience. So over the course of the show, the cast will break the fourth wall and the audience will move through four different spaces throughout the Denver Performing Arts Complex. In the third setting, which is in the basement of the Ellie Calkins Opera House, I sat down with most of the cast members. I feel like I learned more about Hamlet, honestly, through the lens of Cobain, actually, and grunge. I think one of the issues that I see with classical theater a lot, and I don't consider myself a classical actor, I didn't, I didn't really study classical plays much, is that people sort of take Shakespeare and they say, well... Now we're going to do Romeo and Juliet, but it's the Civil War era. And so it, like those sorts of things, like though they're tempting to do, they are at this point, like whenever I see them, I'm like, oh God, okay, like I'm just going to sit through Romeo and Juliet, like, but in space, great. And so this to me, especially not coming from a classical background, was like, wow, this stuff is really, really relevant Still, and I think that's why the classics are still produced largely, is that they are super relevant. But this is taking something that a lot of people feel scared of because of language barrier or whatever it may be, and inviting in a whole new group of people that maybe before wouldn't have explored Shakespeare in any other way than an English class. Those are the voices of Janet Mylott, a vinyl gravedigger who also sings in the show and helped direct, and Liz Kirschmeyer, who plays Ophelia. I asked the group if this kind of music was new terrain for them or if they're all diehard grunge fans like me. The actor playing Laertes named Woodzik jumps in. My joke is if it's not if it's not like jazz or Weird Al or musical theater, I probably don't know it. And so I came to it, well, except the Weird Al parody of Smells Like Nirvana, of course. <laughs> and so it was really interesting to discover and like do a lot of digging into it but yeah to have that underscoring it other than you know instead of like indiscriminate court classical music that would be in a traditional production of Hamlet it just like for me as an actor it emotionally like ups the stakes like to borrow a phrase from Spinal Tap it turns it up to 11. The mashup of Hamlet and Nirvana also has roots that predate the Band of Tufts idea. Here's Janet Mylot again. Both Courtney Love and and um, Kurt Cobain had an obsession with Hamlet. They wrote about Hamlet. They called themselves the Hamlet. Time. And I really think Courtney Love wanted to be Hamlet. Like that was one of her dreams, yeah. actually, to play Hamlet yeah. at one point. So yeah. Dun, 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 dun. I, I, I. 
Nerve Amlet runs at the Denver Performing Arts Complex Fridays in June, Thursdays in July, and the first weekend in August. I'm Alexander McMahon, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.